that your sins are forgiven, that you no longer bear the awful weight of the guilt of sin, that you are reconciled to God, that you are now his child, and you live in that loving relationship now and for eternity. So truly blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Again, we're going to be looking at the subject of forgiveness today in the context of 1 John 1, 9, and that is a fairly familiar verse, I believe. John wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Um, in my opinion, 1 John 1.9 is one of those must-memorize verses. Um, if you haven't memorized it, uh, you will not regret the effort that you put forth to commit it to memory. Um, I find myself frequently going back to 1 John 1.9 and claiming that promise as I go before the Lord and confess my sins. Uh, the promise there is one of those precious promises of God's word. And it is just what we need when we have grieved our heavenly father and when we have wounded our own souls through sinning. Uh, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 41.4, I said, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. So the spiritual healing that we need is found in God's mercy and his willingness to forgive us. Now, the forgiveness that's spoken of in verse 9, it is for those who are already forgiven. I'll say that again. The forgiveness that is spoken of in verse 9 is for those who are already forgiven. I know that sounds a little strange, if not somewhat illogical, but what I mean is this, that that promise, while it can be used legitimately in evangelism, uh, seeking to, to lead a lost person to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, while it can be legitimately used for evangelism, it is actually a promise that is addressed and given to those who are already children of God, and so thus already have experienced forgiveness. As you read through the book of 1 John, it is very clear that he is writing to those who are already saved. Uh, you don't necessarily need to turn to all these references, but for example, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 2, he writes, My little children, these things write I to you that you may not sin, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Then in verse 12 of that chapter, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. And then you go to chapter 3, verse 1, behold what manner of love the Father hath, has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Chapter 5, verse 13, these things have I written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So those verses amply uh, demonstrate the fact that John was writing to those who are already Christians. They are children of God by faith in Christ, and thus their sins are already forgiven. And yet under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John issues this promise that if we confess our sins, we Christians, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the question is raised, if, if we as God's people are already forgiven, then why is it that we need to continue confessing sin and seeking forgiveness? Well, permit me to turn to, uh, uh, to a selection out of Morning and Evening, that uh, devotional that was written by Charles Spurgeon. On February 18th, the February 18th entry, the evening entry, uh, he wrote the devotion based on the verse, Luke 5.18, Father, I have sinned. Listen to what he wrote. This is kind of lengthy, but I think it'll, it'll be helpful as we consider why we need to continue asking for forgiveness as forgiven people. Spurgeon wrote, It is quite certain that those whom Christ has washed in his precious blood need not make a confession of sin as culprits or criminals before God the judge. 
For Christ has ever taken away all their sins in a legal sense so that they no longer stand where they can be condemned, but are once and for all accepted in the Beloved. But having become children and offending as children, ought they not every day to go before their heavenly Father and confess their sins and acknowledge their iniquity in that character? Nature teaches that it is the duty of erring children to make a confession to their earthly father. And the grace of God in the heart teaches us that we as Christians owe the same duty to our heavenly father. We daily offend and ought not to rest without daily pardon. For supposing that my trespasses against my father are not at once taken to him to be washed away by the cleansing power power of the Lord Jesus, what will be the consequence? If I have not sought forgiveness and been washed from these offenses against my father, I shall feel at a distance from him. I shall doubt his love for me. I shall tremble before him. I shall be afraid to pray to him. I shall grow like the prodigal who, although still a child, was yet far off from his father. But if, with a child's sorrow at offending so gracious and loving a parent, I go to him and tell him all, and do not rest until I realize that I am forgiven, then I shall feel a holy love for my father, and shall go through my Christian career, not only as saved, but as one enjoying present peace in God through Jesus Christ my Lord. There is a wide distinction between confessing sin as a culprit and confessing sin as a child. The Father's bosom is the place for penitent confessions. We have been cleansed once and for all, but our feet still need to be washed from the defilement of our daily walk as children of God. End of quote. So, pulling together what Scripture teaches about our standing before God, in position, in our standing before him as his children, we are forgiven of sin and we are cleansed of sin. When you, under the, under the, the workings of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, came to a point where you repented of your sins and you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, you were forgiven and cleansed of sin. And that forgiveness, that cleansing, it, 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 it is not theoretical, it is not partial, it is not provisional, it is not temporary. It is an actuality. It is real. It is complete. It is permanent and it is everlasting. It is sealed forever by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. However, We have this thing we might call practice. So in position, we are forgiven and cleansed, but then there's our daily living, our daily walk, as Spurgeon put it. See, we're freed from the penalty of sin. We are freed from the, from the, 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 the dominance of sin in our life, but while we are in this body, we are still capable of sinning, and we do sin. We need to hate sin. We need to ask for God's grace to, to increasingly overcome it, but we still sin. And because it displeases and grieves our Heavenly Father, because it harms us and harms others, because it hinders our ability to enjoy our relationship with Him, and because it diminishes our usefulness, we must confess and repent. The London Baptist Confession of Faith, which is also uh, uh, mainly the Westminster Confession, says this, as repentance is to be continued through the whole course of our lives upon the account of the body of death and the motions thereof, so it is every man's duty to repent of his particular known sins particularly. So it is our duty to repent throughout our lives constantly coming to the Lord, confessing sin and receiving forgiveness. This is why our Lord taught his disciples to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We are to continually go to the Lord in confession of sin, and we have the promise that he will forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Let's go back to the Lord for a moment in prayer and ask him to bless our time in his word. Heavenly Father, We thank you for the the joy and the privilege of being gathered together in your presence with your people this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the uh, 
the privilege of being able to pray together and to sing together and now to open up the Bible, your holy word. We need the assistance, Lord, of your Holy Spirit, the one who inspired John and the other writers to write these words down so that they are your very word. We need his assistance, Lord, to open up our hearts and minds. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will bless the proclamation of the word and that you will bless us as the hearers of the word. Father, it'll be one message, and yet we are many. We come here today with, uh, with different fears and griefs and afflictions. And Lord, uh, no doubt there are those who have uh, been laboring under the guilt of, of the knowledge of their sins. And I just pray, Lord, today that the Christ who died to purge away sin would be glorified and that you would comfort your people and bring joy as we preach the assurance of forgiveness. We thank you, Lord, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's look at point number one, which we'll call the condition of forgiveness, the condition or, or the requirement of forgiveness. John says, if we confess our sins. Now, I want to go ahead and offer a caution before we get into this point. Please note that I did not say the basis of our forgiveness, because the basis of forgiveness is not in man. Uh, our forgiveness is not something that is initiated by us. It is not something that we receive based on our, our actions or even our sincerity. We are not forgiven because we confess or do any other good work. We are forgiven because of who God is and because of what he has done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll look a, a little bit more at that point later. But God does require us to confess our sins. Now, what does it mean to confess? Well, that, that Greek word that is translated confess is homologeo. It is from the word the same and the word to speak. So very simply, it means to speak the same thing or to say the same thing. It is actually used in 1 John 4 verse 15 where John wrote these words, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. We talk about a profession of faith. Sometimes we talk about a confession of, of faith. And that means that we are saying the same thing as what the Word of God has revealed. We are confessing, yes, Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Salvation is in Him alone by God's grace through faith, which is also a gift of God. And we could go through every point of biblical doctrine, and if we say, I believe this, we are confessing. We're saying the same thing that God has said in His Word. So it is used in that sense. Uh, again, the London Baptist Confession of faith or the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is what I believe. I believe, therefore have I spoken, as the word says. But in the context of 1 John 1, 9, of course we are talking about admission of guilt. We confess sin, we are admitting guilt. Now, when we hear about a confession, we may think about uh, uh, the human legal system where uh, a man is accused of a crime. He's been accused of a crime, whatever it may be, murder or, or theft, larceny, extortion, whatever it may be, and he confesses to that crime. He admits that he is guilty. Now, he may confess because he's been caught red-handed, he's been caught in the act, and so there's really no point in him denying that he committed the crime because he was caught in the very act of it. He, he may confess it because the authorities have offered him a lighter sentence if he will go ahead and confess, and sometimes that's the, that he will also be a witness to his fellow criminals. Um, in very few cases, however, However, is that criminal truly sorry that he committed the crime? He's just confessing and admitting that he did it. He's not truly sorry. In fact, he's probably just sorry that he got caught. Well, we know that biblical confession, uh, that, that's not what God requires of us. God requires that when we confess sin, that it is a heartfelt 
confession. Um, it, is, uh, it, is, uh, it comes out of a godly sorrow over having offended a holy right and righteous God. Paul uh, dis- discusses and elaborates on godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. But there is a genuine sense of guilt. There is a sincere sorrow for having sinned against a holy God. And there is a desire to turn away from that sin and to walk in righteousness. That's what repent means, to to turn away, to turn in the other direction. And so from there, it is expressing in words, it might be silently in prayer, or it might be aloud, but expressing to God, God, I confess that I have sinned. I admit my sins to you, Lord. David wrote in Psalm 38, 18, for I will declare my iniquity. I will declare my iniquity. I will be in anguish over my sins. Another translation, KJV, says I will be sorry for my sin. So it is a confession. It is a verbal admission that arises out of a genuine sorrow over having committed that sin. If you'll keep your place in 1 John and turn to Psalm 51 for just a moment, we'll read some selections out of that psalm. Uh, You may remember that this is the psalm that David wrote after he had finally repented for or his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and having her, her husband murdered. And so he, had, he finally came under conviction and he penned this psalm under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the whole thing is, is, uh, is such a wonderful psalm. All of them are, of course. But let's look at uh, first verses 1 through 4. Oh, by the way, let's go ahead and read the title. To the chief musician, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. So that's how we know the historical context of this psalm. So David writes, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Let me stop there just a moment. When David says against you only have I sinned, he does not mean that he had not sinned against Bathsheba and against Uriah and actually all of Israel. What he is doing, he is seeing sin as supremely targeted to God. When you and I sin, supremely we are sinning against God. And so he was under conviction and a godly sorrow for his sins. He knew primarily I've sinned against God. Let's drop down to verse 7 now. 7 through 10. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So see, he wanted to change. He repented. He realized I've sinned. I want to turn away from that sin, Lord. I want to live for you. Please forgive me and cleanse me. That's the kind of godly sorrow that needs to be the motivation for our confession of, of sin. You can turn back to 1 John 1, nine. The Puritan Thomas Brooks, in his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan Devi- Satan's Devices, wrote this about true repentance. He wrote, True repentance doth include sorrow for sin, contrition of heart, It breaks the heart with sighs and sobs and groans for that a loving God and Father is by sin offended, a blessed Savior afresh crucified, and the sweet comforter, the Spirit, grieved and vexed. That's what needs to be in back of our confession. A a godly sorrow. A godly sorrow. Again, he says, knowing that it, it, uh, it, 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 it has offended a loving God and Father, that a blessed Savior is crucified afresh, and the sweet comforter, the Holy Spirit, is grieved and vexed. So that is the kind of confession that John is calling on us to make, one that arises out of godly sorrow. Just a brief question or answer to a brief question before we move on to the next point. When should we confess sin? Well, ideally... We ought to confess sin the moment we realized we've sinned. 
Uh, we need to do it uh, immediately, as soon as possible. If, if, uh, if we have said something hurtful to our spouse or someone else, or we have uh, given into a lustful thought or something, we need to immediately stop and say, Father, forgive me. Father, forgive me. We may need to uh, confess to a person that we have openly sinned against as well, but we, we need to, to, to repent right then, if, uh, as soon as we're aware of having sinned. Um, uh, another time would be at the end of, of every day, when we take, uh, we take some time to reflect back over the day and ask God to, to bring to our mind ways we might have displeased him, and we, we need to, to confess those things. Um, everybody has heard of the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. It was written by a man named Thomas Ken, K-E-N, Thomas Ken, and it arose out of several songs that he had written to be sung at various points in the day, and he wrote one for the nighttime that is called All Praise, excuse me, yeah, All Praise to Thee, My God, This Night, All Praise to Thee, My God, This Night, and the second stanza goes like this, Forgive me, Lord, for this I pray, the wrong that I have done this day. May peace with God and neighbor be before I sleep restored to me. So forgive me, Lord, for this I pray, the wrong that I have done this day. Every day, in some way, to some degree, we fall short. On your best day, you're going to fall short of God's perfect righteous standards. And so that means there's a place for, the, for confession at the end of every day. So when should we confess? Ideally, the moment we realize we've sinned. Number two, at the end of the day, as we reflect back over the day, and I think we need to add this too, and it's an obvious one, but after periods of backsliding. Have you ever backslidden? I have. I have much more than I care to admit. These are times when we have drifted away from the Lord. We've grown cold in our spiritual life. Uh, maybe we have been in a time of outright rebellion. Uh, David was there. Uh, he, he refused to repent for a while after he had committed adultery and, and had, uh, had, had Bathsheba's husband murdered. It took the prophet coming to him and saying, Thou art the man, David. And then he, he, he repented, but he had, he had backslidden. We think of the prodigal son, right? Where he had left his father and gone off and uh, engaged in what the KJV says is riotous living and wasted all his father's substance and heinous sins. It was a period of backsliding. But God is a gracious God, and he invites the backslider to come home. He invites the backslider to come home in Jeremiah 3.22. Return you backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Their response, indeed, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. And you can find many such verses where God commands and he invites the backslider to come home. So that is... To wrap up the first point, the condition of forgiveness, we are called upon to confess our sins. Let's go on now and look at the basis of forgiveness. The basis of forgiveness. In other words, the ground or the cause of forgiveness. John goes on to say, uh, he is faithful and just. God is faithful and just. That's the ground of our forgiveness. Again, uh, 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 a man or a woman being forgiven is not based in himself or herself. It is, it is not based on who we are or what we do or what we try to be or what we want to be. It is based in who God is and what he has done. And here John gives us two attributes, two characteristics of God, which are the, uh, uh, the basis of forgiveness, not the only basis of forgiveness, but two of them. He is faithful and he is just. Let's consider first that God is faithful. That means that God is trustworthy. God is reliable. God is true. And he is these things completely and infinitely. There is no limit to his faithfulness and his trustworthiness. He is a perfect God, and so he is perfectly 
faithful. And so, specifically, he is faithful to his covenant with his people. If, if you are saved, if you are a true child of God, God entered into, he initiated and brought you into an eternal covenant, an eternal covenant which is unbreakable. Hebrews 13.20 says, The God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. That is the covenant that you are a part of if you are a child of God by faith in Christ. An everlasting covenant in the blood of Christ. Remember at the Last Supper or the First Lord's Supper where Jesus says, take and drink this. This is the blood of the covenant. The New Testament in my blood. The New Covenant in my blood. Your church is named after that covenant. New Covenant Bible Church. An everlasting covenant that God has entered into with his people and he is perfectly faithful to that covenant. He is perfectly faithful to his covenant people even when we are unfaithful to him. He is faithful. We see that reflected in his covenant with his Old Testament people. In the book of Lamentations, and if you'll remember there, Jeremiah the prophet is lamenting over the, the punishment and the discipline that God has had to bring upon the people of Judah for their persisting in sin and idolatry and immorality. And he finally has to bring that discipline upon them. And Jeremiah beholds all the destruction in the, in the, the city and in the, and in the nation, and he's lamenting this. And yet in Lamentations, 3, 21 through 23, he breaks out in what I think is some of those, one of the most wonderful portions of scripture. It's the inspiration for one of our most beloved hymns. He says this, this I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Jeremiah looked around and he knew the people of Judah had not been faithful to the covenant, but the covenant God had been faithful. And that is why he did not destroy his people. His mercies, his compassions are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So the covenant in Christ's blood is why he forgives the sins of his people. He's faithful. He keeps his promises and he promises to forgive. Isaiah 55, 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. God issues the promises and God's faithful to carry them out. So, John says the basis of forgiveness, number one, or item A, under point number two is God is faithful. But then he goes on to say or point to another attribute of God that is the basis of forgiveness that I think is a little unexpected. He says God is just. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, if somebody were to ask you as a Christian, what is it about God that makes him willing to forgive our sins? What is that attribute of God or attributes of God that makes him willing to forgive sin? You might answer, well, it is because he's gracious. It's because he's merciful. It's because he's compassionate. And you know what? That would be true. We could be here the rest of the time just quoting verse after verse after verse that, that proclaims that God is willing to forgive because of those things, because he's gracious and loving and merciful and compassionate. We'll just do one example. Psalm 86.5, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. But John says, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chooses the attribute of justness and justice. Because God is faithful, he will forgive you, and because he is just, he will forgive you. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a little unexpected. That's a little unexpected. What is, what's going on here? Well, just means 
righteous. It's akin to righteousness. So it is similar to him being faithful. Uh, A just man, a righteous man is good to his word, and God is good to his word. He's faithful. If he promises to forgive uh, when we confess, uh, then he will do it. He's not a liar. He is faithful, and he is just. But the, the significance, I believe, lies in something else. So let's, let's walk back a little bit into the, the beginning of the gospel. God is just. He is a God of justice and righteousness and holiness. This means that he must uphold his holy and righteous law, right? God has to uphold his law. Uh, we would say that a human judge is unjust if he did not uphold the law. We expect our judges to support and uphold the law. So God must be true to his law. He must uphold his law, and that means he must punish lawbreakers, period. The breaking of God's law must be punished. There's no way around it. There's no way around it because God is a just God. But he is also gracious. He is also merciful. He is also loving. He is also kind. God wills to show mercy to sinners and forgive them. But his justice has to be satisfied. The law has to be upheld. And so enter in the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal, perfect, sinless Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He comes to earth as a man, the God-man, fully God, fully man. He lives a perfect, perfect, righteous life. And then he goes to the cross, not to bear uh, the, the guilt of anything he had done, for he had done no wrong, but he dies in the place of sinners, bearing the penalty of their law-breaking. So the Lord Jesus Christ dies as the substitute for his people. He bears the penalty of the law. He bears the wrath of God, which should have fallen on us sinners. We deserve wrath, death, and damnation. But the Lord Jesus Christ pays the penalty. He pays the debt we owe. And therefore, he satisfies the justice of God and the mercy of God. When you, see at the cro- when you see the cross, when you gaze at it spiritually, you are, seeing the, you, you are seeing the demands of both justice and mercy being met in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did. He paid the debt we owed. He did it in full. Listen to Hebrews 10, 10 through 14. You don't have to turn there, but it says, By that will, the will of God, uh, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest or human priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified." You see there, Jesus' death on the cross was the perfect, once for all, sacrifice and payment for sin. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. It was paid completely on the cross. And that was in the fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah 53, 5 through 6. You'll remember uh, those precious words there. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him on Christ the iniquity of us all and then in verse 11 he shall see the travail of his soul in other words God the father shall see the travail of the soul of of God the son on the cross and be satisfied by his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities It all gets back to Christ. It all gets back to Christ. Some of his last words on the cross, it it was in one of our uh, songs earlier, Hallelujah, what a Savior. It is finished. Right before he died, he cried out, It is finished. Into my hands I commit thy spirit. What did he mean? He meant 
My work is finished. I've paid the penalty. I have, I have served as the substitute of my people and borne the wrath that should have been on, their, on, on them. It's finished. I've done it. The work is done. Receive my spirit. He paid their debt in, in full. So listen, when you as a Christian, when you on a daily basis or the moment you have sinned and you're smitten in your heart, oh God, forgive me, or maybe you've backslidden and you come to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me, you are forgiven. In fact, you're all, you are already forgiven because of what Christ did for you so many years ago. It's all based on him. God's justice was satisfied. And God is not going to punish you for something that Christ has already taken the punishment for. He took it all on him. God doesn't, doesn't do this double jeopardy thing. It's all, it's all forgiven. It was all paid when Christ died on the cross. And so that's why John can point to God's justice as the basis for our forgiveness because justice was done on the cross when Christ died and paid the, the penalty of, his, of our, our sins. This is reflected in a, I don't know if uh, you all sing it here, the, the song before the throne of God above. And there is, a, there is a stanza in there that I have repeated to myself time and time again. And it goes like this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Wow. That's why I'm forgiven. Because of Christ. Because of what Christ did. Because a sinless Savior died in my place. And that's why I'm forgiven and have this ongoing forgiveness because Jesus paid it all. And God is not unjust. He is not going to require of me that which his son already perfectly paid for. So you know what? I'm forgiven because of the grace of God. I'm forgiven because of the mercy of God. I'm forgiven because of the compassion of God. I'm forgiven because of the loving kindness of God. I'm forgiven because of the faithfulness of God. But I'm also forgiven because of the justice of God. Because justice was satisfied when Christ died in my place and in your place. So we're forgiven because God is faithful and just. Notice we are not forgiven because we are going to make an effort to be faithful and just ourselves. God, forgive me. Uh, I'll, I'll try to be more faithful and, and I'll try to be uh, more righteous and just and forgive me on that basis. No, 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 no. We're not saved because of who we are, what we do, what we try to do, what we sincerely want to do. It's all based in God. Well, let's go on to the final point. We've looked at the, uh, the requirement for, for forgiveness condition of forgiveness, the basis of forgiveness. Now let's look at the certainty of forgiveness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what? To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So first of all, to forgive us our sins. Upon heartfelt repentance and sincere confession, God forgives us. Now again, as a child of God, you're already forgiven. So we, we would say specifically now you're going to be able to experience the blessedness of forgiveness again. You're restored to being able to enjoy that forgiveness that you already have in Christ completely and forever. So we get to enjoy forgiveness again. Uh, remember, in, uh, we didn't read this, but in Psalm 51 and verse 12, David prays, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Now, it is very, very important to note that he did not say, restore unto me thy salvation. He didn't lose his salvation. He did not cease being a child of God. 
but he did lose the joy of salvation. During that period of his sin, and however long it was that he was refusing to repent, and he was trying to cover up his sins, and he talks, uh, he talks about how awful that was because he was no longer able to experience the joy of the Lord. Um, he felt distant from God. Uh, he was running away from God. And so in his repentance, he says, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And that's what's, that's what's going on when you and I repent. We're having the, the joy of salvation restored to us. Uh, the word forgive means to send away, to send forth, to let go. So when you and I confess that, that, that sin or those sins we committed, they're no longer an issue. They no longer stand between us and our Heavenly Father. They no longer hinder our fellowship with Him. We are completely restored. Isaiah thirty-eight seventeen says, Indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness. So he's speaking on behalf perhaps of the nation where there's this bitterness that comes from sin that ultimately will drive us back to our Heavenly Father. Indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness, but you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. The joy of salvation restored. But then he said, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice it's not a partial cleansing. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I believe that's another way of describing forgiveness, to be cleansed of unrighteousness. But there's a different aspect there. And that is based on this, that, that the Bible speaks of you and I when we sin as, as we have defiled ourselves. We have defiled ourselves. Going back to what Spurgeon talked about, our daily walk, and the Bible uses that language. You know, sometimes you, you walk in something nasty, you get dirty, your feet get dirty. Okay, well, that's a picture of what you and I do when we sin in our daily lives, when we give in to sin. We, we've got dirt on us. We've defiled ourselves. We've, we have uh, polluted our, ourselves. Um, and this is why David had cried out in Psalm 51 too, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He felt that defilement when he finally came under conviction of, his, of the sin of adultery and the sin of murder. He felt filthy and vile and, uh, and, and, and polluted. Now, we're tempted to say, well, hey, I haven't ever committed adultery or murdered. Well, but Christ said to even lust after someone you're not married to is adultery in the heart. And John says in 1 John here that to hate your brother is to be guilty of murder in the heart. So yeah, we're guilty of some pretty vile sins, and they're, they're filthy, they pollute us. And when we're under conviction of sin, we feel that. We feel that. And again, that's why David cried out, uh, wash me, Lord. He felt dirty and filthy, but he had faith that God would forgive and cleanse. That's why he wrote a little bit later on in that psalm, in verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. So when you and I are under conviction of sin and we, we, we feel that pollution and that defilement, we feel that wretchedness, we have a promise here that when we confess in godly sorrow that we are cleansed completely and fully, cleansed from all unrighteousness. Now, perhaps you know by experience, I certainly do, that when we fall repeatedly into the same sin. You know, we, we, we coined this word as Christians, besetting sin, those sins that we recognize that we are most susceptible to. When we, when we find ourselves, we repent, we are, we, are, we are truly sorry, and we want to overcome sin, but then we fall back into it again. And, and when, we, when we fall into that pattern, it gets harder and harder to go back to the Lord, doesn't it? It gets harder and harder. And then Satan starts to, uh, to, to make insinuations and starts to whisper lies to us. What he does is he tempts us to sin and says, oh, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. Go ahead and give in. God will forgive you. But then after we sin, then he points to the guilt and he makes us feel horrendous. And he tempts us to think that God can never forgive us again. Or if he forgives us, it'll be grudging forgiveness. And he begins to lie to us. And that's when we, we, have to, we have to 
by God's grace, rise above it. In faith, look to Christ again. Uh, Thomas Brooks, again that I quoted earlier in his, his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, he wrote this, the remedy against this device of Satan is solemnly to consider that believers must repent for their being discouraged by their sins. Their being discouraged by their sins will cost them many a prayer, many a tear, and many a groan, and that because their discouragements under sin flow from ignorance and unbelief. It springs from the ignorance of the richness, fullness, everlastingness of God's love, and from the ignorance of the power, glory, sufficiency, and efficacy of the death and sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ, and from the ignorance of the worth, glory, fullness, largeness, and completeness of the righteousness of Christ, and from their ignorance of that real, close, spiritual, glorious, and inseparable union that is between Christ and their precious souls. Ah, did precious souls know and believe the truth of these things as they should, they would not sit down dejected and overwhelmed under the sense of op and operation of sin. Thomas Brooks. And so you see, we get into this point where we get, we get under the, 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 the burden of guilt and we're wallowing in guilt, and then we, we really end up compounding sin with sin because we, we, we've committed the original sin or whatever it was that, we, that we're convicted about or sins, but then we wallow in guilt because we're failing to exercise faith in the atonement of Christ. We're failing to look and see the one who died in our place and to realize God is faithful and God is just even now, even now, after fall, after fall, after fall, after fall, after fall. God is still a God of love, a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of faithfulness, and a God of justice. And if Christ has paid for that sin, we need to just by faith hold on to the promise. Lord, I believe you. You said if I would confess that you would forgive me and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. That's what David did. His other penitential psalm, Psalm 32, verse 5, he says, I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. He believed God, and that's what we need to do, is to believe God is faithful to his promises. He will forgive. I said that this verse is primarily a promise to believers, and it is. It was written to the little children of God, as John called them. But it is also true that for the one who is unsaved and still under the guilt of sin, and God's wrath, and make no mistake, if you have never repented and placed faith in Christ, you are under God's justice, his just wrath. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. Let me read to you a passage from Exodus 34, 6 through 7. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty. If you leave this life guilty of sin... There is no remedy beyond the grave. God says, I will by no means clear the guilty. If you leave this life an unrepentant sinner, you will pay for your sins with everlasting punishment away from God. And he is just to do that. But it doesn't have to be that way. Because the first part of the verse, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins. He will forgive you. Let's, let's look in closing here just at the two verses around 1 John 1, 9. Let's read verses uh, 8 through 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So don't make God a liar. Confess your sins and come to a loving, gracious, merciful God and repent. 
He will forgive you when you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross to pay the penalty for sinners. So in closing, whether you are already saved and you need to confess sin, you've got business with God, you need to confess sin, or rather you are coming to Christ for the very first time, Know that he will receive you in his grace and in his mercy. He will forgive you. Say, you don't know what I've done. It doesn't matter. He knows what you did. And Christ's blood cleanses all sin for those who come to him and trust in it. He will forgive you and he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I want to leave you with uh, several stanzas from a, a hymn that Charles Wesley wrote called Depth of Mercy Can There Be? Listen to these beautiful stanzas that, uh, that express the truths that we've looked at today. Depth of mercy, can there be mercy still reserved for me? Can my God his wrath forbear, me the chief of sinners spare? I have long withstood his grace, long provoked him to his face, would not hearken to his calls, Grieved him by a thousand falls. Jesus speaks and pleads his blood. He disarms the wrath of God. Now my Father's mercies move. Justice lingers into love. Whence to me this waste of love? Ask my advocate above. See the cause in Jesus' face, now before the throne of grace. There for me the Savior stands, shows his wounds and spreads his hands. God is love, I know I feel. Jesus weeps and loves me still. If I rightly read thy heart, if thou all compassion art, bow thine ear in mercy bow, pardon and accept me now. Let us pray. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, there is no way to do justice to your glory, your majesty, your greatness, your perfections, your grace, your mercy, your compassion, your patience, your long-suffering, your faithfulness, and your justice. Thank you, Lord, for your condescension to us. Thank you for sending Christ to die in the place of poor, helpless sinners, to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. And thank you, Lord, that you raised him from the dead in glory and victory over death and hell for his people. Lord, I, I, I imagine there is at least one person, maybe some or many, who, like me, have often been in the depths of, uh, of despair being tempted by hopelessness uh, because of my sins. Lord, I, I pray that you will just glorify your word, that you will open up the eyes and ears, spiritual eyes and ears of your people to look to you in faith, to look again to Christ and experience the joy and the comfort of forgiveness. And if there are those among us who have never look to Christ. We pray that you would be merciful to them as you have been merciful to us and open up their hearts and minds to believe the gospel, to fall under conviction of their sins, to repent, and that you grant them saving faith in Christ to their good and to the eternal glory of Jesus, your son. We thank you and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.